Section 8 of The Primrose Path by Bram Stoker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Jake Militia. Chapter 8 Down the Hill. From that hour, a cloud seemed to have settled between Jerry O'Sullivan and his wife. Katie did all in her power to atone for what seemed in Jerry's eyes to be a piece of petulance, but which she knew to be the result of nervous weakness springing from protracted suffering and overwork. Jerry, as he got a little stronger too, got less petulant, and did not resist Katie's advances, although there seemed to be still in his breast a sense of injury which took the outward expression of a kind of latent antagonism, specially galling to his wife. It was a good while before he was able to work, and neither his strength nor temper was improved by finding that, during his illness, his place at the theatre had been given away to another man. When he was able, he called to the theatre, and, after waiting for a long time, saw the manager, who coolly told him that, of course, he could not afford to pay two men for doing the same work, and so had been obliged to get another tradesman. Jerry remonstrated, saying that he did not wish to take away any man's bread, but that, after all, fair play was fair play, and that, as he had been injured in the theatre, he thought he should be treated with some consideration, and be restored to his place which he had done nothing to forfeit. He was met with the answer that a man must bear the risk and trouble of his own accidents on his own shoulders, that the manager had not been to blame in the matter, that Jerry had had the working of the machinery entirely under his own control, and that it was his own fault if anything went wrong. Jerry felt that there was a soupçon of justice in this, and said no more. Indeed, he did not get the chance of speaking, as the manager walked away. He did not know how the accident had occurred, for the idea of Mrs Muldoon's part in it never entered his head. He took it for granted that it was one of those accidents which will occur, and hard as was his lot, that he must put up with it. He tried to get work in the neighbourhood, but there was then in London a strike in the building trade, and there was no work to be had. Day after day, Jerry walked for miles and miles, trying every place to get work, but all in vain. He had not yet recovered his strength, and so felt his efforts cramped, and consequently worried himself so much, and fretted so constantly, that both his health and his temper suffered. Katie had much to bear. Since Jerry was earning nothing, she had to earn for all. She worked early and late, and grudged herself even a sufficiency of food, that Jerry might have enough, and so get stronger. She was always in good humour, and no matter what pain or sorrow was in her heart, there was ever a loving smile to meet Jerry, when either he or she returned home. Still she could not earn enough to buy sufficient food, and so the pawn office was visited again and again, till the home was left well-nigh empty. At last, Jerry, finding that no work at his trade could be obtained, made up his mind to do what he could. He tried to get work in different places, and of different kinds, but, like many another poor fellow, he found that London is too full of hungry mouths for work to go long a-begging, and it seemed to him that his lot in life was to be for the future just too late to get anything he sought for. One day he thought he would try the theatre, for he knew work, though of poor kind, was sometimes to be got there. It was not without a mighty effort that he made up his mind to seek employment from the man who had superseded him, and whom in his heart he regarded bitterly as an usurper. 
The new man seemed to recognise and to reciprocate the hostility, and his manner to poor Jerry was extremely galling. He was happy to be able to show his own power by giving work to the other man and by patronising him, or else he would have peremptorily refused. As it was, he gave him some work, and even made a point of seeming to treat him differently from the other men who were doing the same work, a fact which made every one of them hate Jerry with the hatred of jealousy. The little he now earned helped to banish the extreme want from the household, yet somehow all seemed now even more miserable than when dire cold and hunger stared them in the face. The cause was this. While cold and hunger and dire misery were inmates of the house, there was something to be borne. There was a sense of complete difference between the old circumstances and the present, altogether a sense that this through which they were passing was unreal, merely a crisis, and that the present evils must pass away in time. But now no such sense of contrast existed. Jerry was working as of old, and enough money was coming in to buy off the officers of the grim sheriff, Death. Jerry was working, indeed, but not in the old way. There was now neither hope nor ambition. To work was merely to toil ceaselessly to support existence that was a burden. Jerry grew more and more despondent as the days wore on. Katie's bright looks and hopeful words were now of no avail, and slowly and surely the conviction grew on her that sorrow, hopeless and overwhelming, was coming into their lives. Jerry began to feel, in all its force, how great had been his folly in leaving Dublin. Whilst he worked he kept thinking to himself how different all would have been had he remained at home. Here sickness and trouble would have been his surest titles to the help and sympathy of his many friends, but in London, amid strangers, where the maxim of life seemed to be sauve qui peut, a maxim which might be translated every man for himself, all was different, and to be down in the world was to be trampled upon. Whenever he thought thus, there came to Jerry a fierce temptation to lose sight of his misery, as other men lost sight of theirs, in that hell-cauldron which is picturesquely termed the bowl. He resisted this temptation for a time, but he felt that his resolution was giving way. He would have returned to Dublin but for lack of means, and he had not yet fallen so low as to beg for assistance. One day he was reprimanded in good round terms by his superior for some seeming fault. He answered temperately, and was told to shut up. He did shut up, for he felt that he dared not risk his present employment. That day at dinner hour he went to Grinnell's and drank recklessly. When a man who resists temptation for a time suddenly gives way to it, his fall is mighty. Jerry was unable to return to his work, and after a drunken sleep in the taproom, was left at home in the evening still half stupefied. Katie saw what had happened, and none can imagine her anguish, save those who have known and felt some terrible sorrow, some sorrow where there was no thought of self. She did not wish for death, because she thought of her children, but too surely she saw that Jerry had been drinking to drown his care, and she knew that till the care disappeared, which could now only be at death, the remedy would be attempted again and again. And she was right. Shakespeare was right too when he wrote, Lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. When a naturally good disposition is warped or bent in a wrong direction, all the strength that had been for good works now for evil, 
and in proportion to the natural strength of character is the speediness of the complete ruin. Day after day Jerry visited Grinnells, and day by day he grew more of a sot. He very seldom got drunk, because he felt that such would involve his dismissal, but he was nearly always in a state of fuddle. Katie's life grew harder and harder to bear, but she strove ever with herself and determined that no effort, active or passive, either of action or endurance, should be wanting on her part to reclaim her husband. She used to wait up for Jerry no matter what hour he stayed out till, and never made his coming home unpleasant by showing that she had been sitting up or suffering anxiety from his absence. A couple of times when she thought it likely that she would see him, she peeped through the door of Grinnell's, and each time she saw Jerry either drinking or playing cards, or following both pursuits at once. The gambling was a new phase of vice to her, for she did not know that the one sin follows hard on the track of the other. Jerry had, indeed, gone down the hill, with no friends round him to arrest his downward course, but surrounded by a troop of evil companions who wished to see him as low or lower than themselves, he was falling, falling, still. At such times, Katie had stood shivering in the doorway, shrinking out into the night each time anyone entered the house or left it, but coming back again and again, as if fascinated. She noticed that Jerry, in his play, seemed to have always bad luck, and to always play recklessly. It was heartbreaking work to her, standing thus an unseen witness of the fall of the man she loved better than herself, and oftentimes the temptation to go in and try to induce him to leave the place became almost too strong for her. She retained herself, however, overcome for the time by the deadly fear that any overt act of hers might shear away the last thread of her influence over him. At last one evening the temptation to enter became too strong. Jerry had seemingly worse luck than usual, and drunk more accordingly. He got exceedingly quarrelsome, and before anyone could interfere, a fight had arisen. It was not a long fight, for the bystanders were numerous, and soon choked off the combatants the way men choke off fighting dogs. Jerry's opponent, none other than Seabright, regained command of his temper in a few seconds, but as for Jerry himself, his rage was frightful. He would not be pacified or appeased in any way, but continued to rage and storm with purple, swollen face, and voice hoarse from passion and drink. Katie saw that they were making him worse by holding him the way they did, and irritating him. She could stand it no longer. She pushed open the door and entered. At the sound of the opening door, all turned round in fear that the newcomer was a policeman, and in the universal movement Jerry was released. Seeing a pretty young woman enter, for Katie, despite her long spell of hardship and suffering, was a pretty young woman still, the men who did not know her began what they called being civil. Jerry knew instinctively that Katie would not have entered the public house without some cause, and his conscience told him that that cause was his own misconduct, and so in his semi-drunken rage he determined to vent his anger, which was half for himself, on her. In addition, he heard the sotto voce remarks of the other men, and this inflamed him still more. He came angrily forward and said to his wife in hard, stern, angry tones, "'What brings you here?' The suddenness of the question and the tone of it took Katie by surprise, and she had to pause before replying. Her embarrassment was increased by the glare of light and the rude, admiring eyes turned upon her. 
Jerry repeated his question with his face inflamed and his right hand raised. It was the first time Jerry's hand had ever been raised to her in anger, and it was no wonder that poor Katie covered her face and wept. This seemed to make Jerry more angry still. He took her by the arm roughly and shook her, saying, "'At it again! Crying! Always crying!' Then again, with a sudden change, "'What brings you here, I say? What brings you here?' Katie lifted her head and looked at him pleadingly through her tears. "'Come home, Jerry. Come home!' "'I'll not go home. "'Go you home and don't dare to watch or follow me again. "'Out of this, I say, out of this.' "'Oh, Jerry, Jerry, don't send me away tonight. "'Oh, Jerry, you're hurting me. Indeed you are. "'I'll go quietly. "'Don't let me go, Jerry. "'Look at all the men. "'It is ashamed of my life I am.' "'Out of this, I say.' "'Oh, Jerry, come home.' "'For answer, Jerry lifted his hand and struck her in the face.' The blow was a severe one, but Katie did not seem to feel it. The pain in her heart at the spirit which prompted the blow was so great that no outward pain would have touched her for the moment. With the courage and resolution of utter despair, for what could now be worse since Jerry had struck her, she clung to him, crying almost wildly, "'Come home! Come home!' Jerry dashed her aside and ran over to the counter. "'Give me brandy!' he said to Grinnell. Quick, man, give me brandy! Grinnell was in no wise backward, and gave him as he desired. He drank off two or three glasses, one after the other, despite all Katie could do to prevent him. After this, his coming home was a matter of mere labour, for he got too drunk to stand or to think, and lay on the floor like a log. Katie looked round appealingly for help. Seabright and Mons, the only two men whom she knew, had both disappeared, for both of them retained sufficient pride to make them anxious to avoid the gaze of the injured woman. The help came from an unexpected quarter. Grinnell, who had hitherto been leaning complacently across the bar, came from behind it and said very gently, "'Let me help you.' Katie was so anxious about Jerry that she did not notice the strangeness of the offer coming from such a man but answered gratefully, "'Oh, thank you, sir. God will bless you.' Grinnell smiled softly to himself, but Katie did not see this smile. The pot-boy was sent for a cab, and, when it came, was put in charge of the bar, whilst Grinnell helped Katie to take home her husband. There was lots of assistance to put into the cab, but as she could not get him out herself, Grinnell went with her himself. When the vehicle began to move, Grinnell said softly, this is a very sad affair. Oh, sad indeed, sighed Katie. I wish to God, said Grinnell with intensity of voice, that I had known of you before. Your husband would not have got drink in my house. God bless you, sir, for these words. Oh, you will help me to keep him straight now, will you not? I will. You see, said Katie, feeling that a palliation of her husband's conduct was necessary, the poor fellow has much trouble and sorrow, and he was badly treated at the theatre. I know it, I know it, said Grinnell with indignation. Didn't the old neighbourhood ring with it, and the people cry shame on old Meredith? Why, well, I couldn't stand it, and it was no business of mine. I only wished to see justice. I am so bad as I look. I went to see him, and says I, Look you here, sir, says I, you're doing wrong. He is the best workman in London, and the best fellow too, says I, and you're losing him and doing a wrong thing. 
and don't you expect to gain by it, says I, for wickedness never prospers, says I, and I tell you what, says I, some of the other theatres will get hold of him, and then won't you be sorry. I have a good deal of influence, says I, and I'll use all of it for him. He was going on thus when the cab stopped. He helped Katie to lift out Jerry, and between them they carried him up to the room. Grinnell waited a few minutes only, and said good night to Katie in a most friendly manner. I will call round in the morning and see how he goes on, he said, and if you want anything that I have, you know it is quite at your disposal. Oh, sir, I wouldn't for the world. I have no money, and I wouldn't for the world have Jerry feel that I owed money for anything. Grinnell gave a sudden, unintentional laugh. <laughs> Put your fret about that, he said. Oh, Sullivan owes me myself too much money already to let that trouble him. Katie put her hand on her heart at this fresh blow, but said nothing. Grinnell went on. But that doesn't matter. Lord bless you. He's as welcome as the flowers of May. I'm too fond of him to let a trifle of money vex him. Then he went out. Katie, despite her prejudice, could not but feel better disposed towards him. The narrative of what he had done for Jerry, in going to the manager, touched her deeply, and she said to herself, Well, we should never judge by appearances. It is a lesson to us. Had she known that, in all Grinnell had said, there was not one single word of truth, she might have thought differently. End of chapter 8